welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, my name is Bob Whitaker, and I'm joined today by two guests, Alan Horwitz and Sarah Fay, for a discussion about the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and its impact on our society and our personal lives. Alan Horwitz is an Emeritus Professor of Sociology at Rutgers University, and he is the author or co-author of 11 books, a number of which have focused on the DSM and how the successive iterations of that manual have shaped societal thinking about mental disorders. His most recent book is DSM, A History of Psychiatry's Bible. Sarah Fay is a writer whose essays and articles have been published in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and numerous other national publications. And her articles and essays have been nominated for a number of awards, national awards. Her memoir, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, was published in March. She's also the founder of Pathological, the Movement, a public awareness campaign, and I quote here, devoted to making people aware of the unreliability and invalidity of DSM diagnoses and the dangers of identifying with an unproven mental illness. Welcome, Alan and Sarah. It's, so, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, we'll have, I think, an interesting discussion here. Alan, I'm going to start with you. And one of the reasons is because you can provide us a big picture of how the DSM has shaped societal thinking about mental disorders and even our sense of self. Because, of course, when you start defining mental disorders, it becomes sort of a philosophy of being that is presented to society. So... My first question is this. You're a sociologist, and can you tell me why you became so interested in the DSM? Why did you think it was a subject of such importance to, to investigate and research and write about? You know, I sort of entered the field of mental illness in the early 1970s when I was a graduate student in sociology at Yale University. And although I wasn't really aware of what was going on, as it happened, the DSM was being developed at Yale at the time with, and the people who I was working with were developing it, although, you know, un unknown to me at, at the time. I, I did my dissertation at the Connecticut Mental Health Center. And I mean, this was the, an age before confidentiality. So I had free access to the charts of people, which now in retrospect seems amazing to me. These charts, they didn't have diagnoses. Um, and, you know, they would go in detail into the problems that people were having. But diagnoses just weren't uh, an important aspect of how they were being looked at and how they were being treated. You're talking about in the 1970s, they're fashioning the DSM-3. Yes. So when you see these case studies, you're seeing that with DSM-1 and DSM-2, diagnoses were not showing up on the, the case reports of these uh, patients. Correct. And so all of a sudden in 1980, when the DSM-3 is, is published, not only are diagnoses a critical part, they're probably the most critical aspect. At first, you start by getting a diagnosis of what problem um, the person has, and then that diagnosis guides 
um, how that person is treated, what kind of drugs they're getting, what sort of psychotherapy they're getting. So it was just such a tremendous transformation in a very short period of time. So it's going from diagnoses playing almost no role to there being the central aspect of psychiatric treatment. So this has just been a fascinating thing to try and unravel. So one one thing I just heard from you that I think is really fascinating. Before DSM-3, the descriptions of people were of individuals (laughs) that weren't just all put together and individuals with an individual life story, so to speak. And there's sort of an intimacy and a response to that individualization. Is that correct? What we, if you were to say what was going on at that time? Oh, at that time, there was really what I would call a psychosocial view of patients where it, that combined sort of particular life history, people with particular life histories who were confronting particular kinds of life situations. Um, and so in one sense, it, each patient was really had a different set of circumstances, which um, turned out to be, even though, I, I mean, it was true, but it turned out to be a real problem for psychiatry because how can you form a um, you know, reliable and generalizable diagnostic system like you have in other areas of medicine? And if psychiatry is going to be a respected branch of medicine, they need a standardized diagnostic system. I know in your last book, you write about this history of DSM-1 and DSM-2 and its relative non-use in diagno- for diagnostic purposes in psychiatric circles. But then we get this big transformation in 1980. So can you go get a little bit into what were the motives present in the 1970s that led the American Psychiatric Association to make this big transformation? What was behind the publication and the creation of DSM-3? Yeah, I think there uh, were several important aspects. Within psychiatry, I think the most important was that sort of the mainstream of the profession in the 1950s and 1960s was clearly psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysts couldn't care less about diagnoses. It just wasn't important that you, you know, look for the hidden unconscious factors that shaped who a person was. Then in the 19, beginning in the 1950s and intensifying in the 1960s, you have an entirely different type of psychiatry emerging, which is called biological psychiatry. And these were really... So, hardcore researchers who generally didn't really see patients, um, but they were devoted to developing specifically targeted drugs and especially focused on depression because for the analysts of this very global notion of anxiety drove their work to the extent that any kind of um, phenomena did. So the, the new biological 
researchers sort of ceded anxiety to the analysts. They weren't going to go there and took up depression as their um, sort of stronghold and really strove to develop very targeted drugs. And they, they did mostly serendipitously, you know, find drugs that probably, um, while they had uh, you know, a, a number of pretty bad side effects, they really were quite effective in dealing with um, depressive conditions. But their motto was really specificity. You want to have targeted drugs towards different conditions. As though the drugs were an antidote to those conditions. Precisely. Um, and another aspect of their thinking was they weren't concerned with experience. I mean, that, you know, analysts might want to deal with, you know, how you know, people thought, what you know, kinds of life events they were undergoing. The um, biological psychiatrists just couldn't care less about that. And then a third difference is they were very interested in the brain. And that was, um, at, this was a period when you know, the DNA, um, DNA was discovered in 1952. That sort of transformed um, biology and a lot of thinking about human behavior. So they didn't care about people, they cared about brains. So this is a very, very different way of thinking about psychiatry. One of the things I thought was very interesting, what you just said is, they're going to locate problems within the brain, as opposed to a person's interaction with their environment and life experiences. We're going to, we're going to find the answer in the, in the chemicals of the brain, which is a very different thing. Uh, one thing I would like you to expand upon is how, and you wrote about this in The Loss of Sadness, what was the understanding of depression historically? <laughs> yes, um... Well, yeah, major depressive disorder, MDD, is probably turned out to be the central diagnosis in DSM-3. It's a terrible diagnosis from any scientific point of view, and it took until really the, the 21st century before um, researchers were able to admit it. But the reason it's so bad is that you need to have five of eight symptoms to qualify for the diagnosis, and you only need to have them for a two-week period. So anyone who for two weeks has been feeling down, who had sort of a loss of appetite, has trouble sleeping, is basically a normal reaction to any kind of loss event, can easily qualify for a diagnosis of major depression. On the other side, and this is what had been true, I mean, since ancient times, depression has been one of the only diagnoses that's always been recognized as a very serious mental health problem, where people have um, you know, suicidal thoughts, where they find you know, nothing in life is worthwhile, that it can can be a very serious disorder. And Alan, that's often present in hospitalized depression, right? Historically. Yes, correct. And so why this is such a good thing for psychiatry is you have all of these um, population surveys being done that show you know, huge 
proportions of the population are suffering from depression. And well, of course they are because it's a natural uh, reaction. It's the common cold of psychiatry. But on the other hand, that melancholic sorts of depressions truly are very severe, but they're a you know, small minority of people who can qualify for MDD. So for that, on that side, groups like the World Health Organization are saying this is the most disabling condition of any physical or mental illness because they're saying its severity is equivalent to paraplegia or blindness. And then meanwhile, and this is happening simultaneously, the um, drug industry is coming up with a whole new class of what come to be called antidepressants, even though they're not really antidepressants, but they have to be called that because the anti-anxiety drugs that were wildly popular in the 1950s and 1960s became discredited in the 1970s. And there's all of this um, movement to strictly regulate the, the tranquilizers. So they don't want to call the, um, the new um, S you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the SSRIs, anti-anxiety, and they hit, uh, it's a brilliant marketing tactic to call them antidepressants. And at the same time, they're finally at the, in the late 80s can develop direct-to-consumer advertisements, which they spend you know, literal, you know, tens of millions of dollars promoting these, then clearly aiming at the minor, you know, the normal depressions that stem from everyday problems. I mean, you don't see in these advertisements, you know, really seriously depressed, suicidal people who are in hospital situations. You, you know, find, you know, the um, you know, wives who are squabbling with husbands or having trouble raising their children, that every day they're targeted at everyday problems. And they are hugely successful until... Now, their patents were, you know, expired. The, the funny thing about the ads with television ads, you're right. It's never about someone in a hospital bed. But it's also like you take the drug and pretty soon you'll be walking on a beach with a beautiful person. <laughs> Life's going to be good. Better than normal. Better than normal. Well, of course, and we also get the chemical imbalance story at this time to market these drugs, which is a story of great advance. Can you just talk about how that fits into this whole diagnostic expansion? And also, and this is the big question, I think, Alan, is what is happening to our sense of self as this is this sort of pathologizing is going on and we're told about chemical imbalances? What are we learning about our mind and, and, and what governs us? Yeah, well, the chemical imbalance theory was initially developed in the 1960s um, before the, the DSM-3. Interestingly, depression was linked to epinephrine and not um, serotonin, but it was very popular for a, a relatively short period of time accepted by psychiatric researchers. I think now, I mean, virtually nobody accepts that, except for the drug companies, which find it a 
you know, convenient way to link what their products do you know, to the brain, even though there's really no evidence that a chemical imbalance is the cause of the, the problems that people are suffering from. But of course, many in the public were told they had a chemical imbalance, and that became their way of understanding themselves. So just as the biological people were saying, oh, the problem's in the brain, people were being encouraged, say, your problems are due to this chemical, as opposed to what's going on in your life. And I just, that's such a profound shift in self-understanding, I think. You're not going to sell many drugs by saying, yeah, your problem is you know, your life experiences. It's far more effective to say your problem is in the brain. It's an imbalance. We can correct that imbalance. Just you know, take our product. That's a great overview of how we move from one way of thinking into another way of thinking. And now I'm going to turn to Sarah, because Sarah, when by the time she hit her teenage years, uh, you were in you were in the DSM three world. So, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your first diagnosis and how it came about, and then we'll go from there. And as you tell us about your first diagnosis, tell us what you were thinking about yourself as a twelve year old when you're you're told you have this biological disorder. I was diagnosed with anorexia when I was twelve, and it's so interesting to hear Alan talk and to give this overview because I, as you said, I see myself in it. And I say in my book that I'm I'm such a product of the DSM. Um, But I was, my parents were divorcing. I was going to a new high school. So thinking of context, I was incredibly sad that my parents were divorcing and did not have a language for it. And going to a new high school, I was terrified, beyond terrified. And at the time, I didn't even know what emotions were. I only found out last year, actually. And I'm <laughs> so emo- emotions are vibrations in your body. They are sensations in your body. I didn't know that. And I had a terrible, dark pit in my stomach all the time. And it made me so sick, I didn't want to eat. So I wasn't eating. And there was good reason for why I wasn't eating. I mean, I was not weighing myself. I was not staring at myself in the mirror. I was not reading fashion magazines, although I know that's a very reductive way of looking at anorexia. Um, It's just such a reductive way and an insulting way of looking at it. But that I had no pressure on me to be thin. I was not going to be a prima ballerina or didn't have hopes for that. I didn't want to be a model, nothing like that. But I had these very understandable life situations that were going on that if someone had just looked at that first... As Alan said, I may not have gotten the diagnosis first, but what happened was uh, I went on a class trip and I didn't eat the whole time. We were gone for about four days and on a 12-year-old body, that's pretty hard. And so I tried to eat. I threw up the food. I tried to drink water. I couldn't hold that down. So when we returned from the class trip that afternoon, my mother took me to the hospital only because our primary care physician was actually working out of there. It was Children's Memorial Hospital. You know, again, I don't know how long we were there, but he saw me, weighed me, asked, my mother said she hasn't been eating, and I had anorexia, you know, in a very, very short time in this room. And so that was the first conversation I even had. My mother had never, hadn't talked to me yet about not eating. 
I mean, I didn't just get a diagnosis. I got a full explanation for everything that was going on. And I believed it. The problem, nothing really would have been that bad or gone awry if I, one, hadn't heard the diagnosis or then started to learn about it. And I read a book. I'm a reader, obviously, because I'm a writer. And I read Stephen Levincron's The Best Little Girl in the World. It's about a girl named Kessa, and it just... Like many um, eating disorder memoirs, it's really a cheat sheet on how to be an anorexic. And I learned how to do it, and I became one. It really became my identity. And I started to cut my food up in a certain way, and I started to move food around on my plate and stuff it in the cuffs of my pants. And so I really learned how to do it, and then eventually I entered an outpatient treatment program, and that was even worse, you know, because again, now it's really serious. Now everything's really wrong. And it's all because of this word anorexia. So instead of being understood that you have these things going on in your life, your parents are divorcing, you're going to a new school, and that can be, you know, very problematic for a child and very upsetting. You were told the problem was within you, right? Yes. That you had anorexia. And what's really interesting, what you just said is, and you begin adopting your adapting behaviors to prove yourself that you had anorexia, right? You started taking on the character of, of someone with anorexia, but you didn't realize you were doing that, of course. No, no. I mean, it wasn't that I was faking. It was absolutely in keeping with what I was experiencing in my body with a stomach ache and not wanting to eat. And it was very much you know, in keeping with the weight I was losing. I mean, I, my weight was dangerously low, but it really became extreme once I started being an anorexic and thinking of myself that way. Um, and that partly, I think, because I was so young and that's when you are figuring out your identity. That's when you are trying on different identities. And that's what worries me. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, I teach at Northwestern um, and I see it in my students all the time, that they are identifying so strongly with the diagnoses they've been given. And it's really a part of their identities at this point. And it's at that time when you're just trying things on and you're so vulnerable. Yeah, I think this is one of the things going back to what Alan said, when I'm an old guy. So when I was growing up, you just didn't have people being presented with this possible identity. You just didn't. There were bullies, goof-offs, screw-ups, that sort of thing. But you really weren't presented with the opportunity to become a mental patient at age 12. That wasn't very common. But you were now introduced into an identity that's going to carry forward with you for decades. Is that correct? Exactly. And I think it's really important to note that my primary care physician, my pediatrician, gave me the diagnosis because... My, we often talk about psychiatrists, but five of my six diagnoses that I ended up with came from primary care physicians who I saw for about 15 minutes and, you know, once a year or whatever it might be. And that's really, especially if you see, if you have a man in a white coat with a stethoscope giving, you know, it's often in a hospital giving you a diagnosis, why would you ever question its scientific validity, its medical, you know, soundness or its reliability? So that leads you down a path. Your career does go along, but at the same time, you're, you're moving through different stages of, of diagnoses. You go to, I think your next is, is it, I don't know, there's depression, anxiety, OCD, ADHD, and bipolar. So as you're moving through these different diagnoses, what are you saying to yourself? First, you have anorexia, but now you have depression. Are you saying that like, 
it was undiagnosed before or like this is just the evolution of mental illness within me? What are you saying to yourself as you move through these different diagnoses? And, you know, this is the late 90s. So diagnoses were not talked about in the public discourse the way they are now. So when I was receiving these diagnoses, they were pretty new to me. I didn't think I didn't have a million friends who had the diagnosis as well. I didn't have people I could talk to about it. But what had happened was with the anorexia diagnosis, I already saw life through a lens of diagnosis. So when there's a problem, you look for the solution and the solution is a diagnosis, right? The solution is going to come from the diagnosis. We're going to figure out the diagnosis and then we're going to figure out what's wrong with you. And that was the path I went down. So when I got, when I was told that I had major depressive disorder, I thought, and my, mind you, I was, and I write about this, but I was grieving very seriously. It just happened to be for my cat of 16 years, and that's not acceptable <laughs> for the bereavement exclusion. And anyone who loves cats right now is just going to want to write letters to someone about this. But it was, it was very difficult for me, and I grieved for about two years and was over-exercising, and, and you know, I was... Um, crying all the time and experiencing what this one doctor saw as, you know, signs and symptoms of major depressive disorder. But because I already saw life through the lens of diagnosis, I, I think I accepted them more readily. So Alan talked about how a diagnosis begets a treatment because we had these specific treatments for it, which as a first line of treatment, of course, is drugs, whether it be an quote, an antidepressant or an antipsych, whatever it might be, but you know, there's specific agents. As you look back on the different treatments, the different exposure to different drugs, can you see in any way how those, the drug treatment itself began to stir a different you and perhaps even help push you along into these do diagnostic categories. What's interesting about that is I, at the time they weren't giving anorexics medication, so they weren't prescribing. I never received a medication actually until I was in my, I guess it would be late thirties. Um, so I had already received all these diagnoses. I was the kind of person who wouldn't take aspirin. I mean, I was just very anti-medication. I was scared of what it was going to do to me. And I think what else is important is I tried everything. Often people with mental illness, and I am someone with a mental illness or who had one, depending on how we think about it, um, were shamed by relying too easily on a drug or something like that. And I really did everything I could. I meditated. I even met, I even got to meet Thich Nhat Hanh. I mean, I practiced yoga for 20 years. I mean, I tried everything, Chinese herbs. I did DBT, CBT, ACT. I mean, all these um, things that were supposed to help, but at the time they still talked about diagnoses. So CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is an alternative to psychotropic drugs, but it also re reified my diagnosis. It still said I was treating my diagnosis. Um, but I will say that once I was on, as soon as I was on the medication path, it went very fast. So it didn't matter that it was only about 10 years, because as soon as I, you know, I had taken and um, first I was given, well, I had been given Valium when I was um, diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. But later, once I was given an antidepressant 
And then I started getting other diagnoses, but I was put on ADHD medication then taken off that. Then, you know, the mood stabilizers came in, then lithium, then antipsychotics. And it went very, very fast. And I think to your point, the really important thing was I stopped questioning them too. Because if you're not questioning the diagnosis, you're not going to question the treatment that much because why would you? You know, I thought, again, I thought we were just getting to the bottom of it. I thought we were just getting to the answer. And so, and I had akathisia. I mean, I had horrible side effects from antipsychotics, which is where you just feel like you're crawling out of your skin and you can't stop moving. And it was awful. And I still wanted to stay on them because I thought, oh, it's got to get better, you know, and that this is the answer. So, um, You've done a really nice job here of showing how this lens of diagnosis really shaped your life and eventually led to medications that also you were seeing through this lens of diagnosis and all. You know, how did you change your thinking? And what was that like to change your thinking when you started seeing, well, well, maybe these diagnoses aren't valid. They're not valid scientifically. So how did that happen? And what was that like for you? to suddenly question the very story you had organized your life around and seen yourself through. So I was at this point um, in my 40s and I was in crisis. I had been suicidal on and off for about a year. I had been diagnosed at that point with bipolar one and I had a falling out with my psychiatrist who was also my therapist. And the falling out came because I started to see that when your therapist and your psychiatrist are the same person, you have no one to talk to your med about, you know, no one to talk to about your meds or is this psychiatrist the right person for me? And so I had asked him, can I see someone else for therapy and continue to see you for psychiatry? And he said, no. And at the time I was um, almost out of medication. And so, you know, I was going to just walk out, but I said, you know, I need you to refill my prescription and he wouldn't do it. And so I left to, he said, have your primary care physician do it. She had just retired. And, and so I was, and I, meanwhile, I'm in crisis. I mean, I'm not in a place I'm extremely, I don't ever like the word fragile, but I was at that time, extremely fragile. And so the idea of finding a new psychiatrist or finding a new primary care physician was just completely seen beyond me. But luckily, I am one of those, I think, fairly rare people who had the support of my family. And I know how lucky I am to have had that. And my sister found a new psychiatrist. I went to see him. He was He's kind of a flashy guy. <laughs> so, uh, But I went to see him and we had our 27-minute or 34-minute first session. And I waited at the end for him to tell me and proclaim from on high what diagnosis I had, whether it was a new diagnosis or he would, you know, reify the old diagnosis or what it would be. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world changed. I mean, I'm still, he's, he's still my psychiatrist actually, because I was so grateful to him for his transparency. And I didn't actually know what to do with that information, but not only did I start to see myself differently, although that took you know quite a few years, but the whole world, that afternoon, I remember walking out of his office and walking down Chicago Avenue in Chicago, and it just seemed crisper. It was colder, but it was also more vibrant. And it was like someone had just told me the truth. And so then I started researching. I wanted to know everything about mental health diagnoses. I had never heard of the DSM. I didn't know where they came from. And I just took it upon myself as a writer to find out everything I could. And, you know, both your book, Bob and Alan's were fundamental in that. And they just helped me see what was really happening, just the full picture. That was all I wanted. 
Um, and so, but it was really scary. I, you know, I have to admit that I was so attached to my diagnosis. I had found myself in it. I had defined myself by it. I mean, I had filed for disability at one of my universities. So did I have a disability? Did I not have a disability? Do I have a mental illness? Do I not have a mental illness? I was suicidal. You know, I don't, I didn't know what to do with all the information that I had. And I mean, I'm very fortunate that I had a purpose and that I had, you know, my research and then eventually the writing of my book to carry me through that time. It's a moment really where you uh, sort of need to create a new self-narrative for going forward, for understanding your past and going forward, it sounds like. That's part of the challenge. Um, your title of your book says, uh, you know, the story of six misdiagnoses. Why misdiagnoses? Why not fake diagnoses or something like that? That's such a good point. The reason why we ended up going with that title, and I, I did talk to my editor about that, um, but one reason we went with misdiagnoses ultimately, because we thought about overdiagnosis, you know, is that the right term or false positives? <laughs> you know, what was really going on with me in those years? But what I didn't want was anyone to think I was saying that mental illness isn't real. Because I, I know 100% that it is. As I said, I have one. I, I take great pride in having had a mental illness. I don't believe they're chronic. I believe I've healed. So that's why I say had. But I very much identify as someone with one because I know how strong people with mental illness are. We're treated as weak and we're not. Anyone who's touched that should know how, how strong you have to be to endure it. Um, but so misdiagnosis when, you know, the definition that I was working with is that it's a diagnosis that's incorrect, inaccurate, and inadequate. And every single diagnosis in the DSM is a misdiagnosis, is what I say. Misdiagnosis felt right to me in terms of not dismissing anyone else's experience or trying to make it seem like I was saying something that I'm not. What you just said actually leads to a very interesting question, I think. Because you identified as at least having had an illness. And we also heard about uh, at a time when people were not seen as having an illness necessarily, but struggling to cope, which is really a different conception of things. So in a way, if I accept your understanding that you have a mental illness, there would still be a, a need for or a thought that we need a manual that separates these illnesses that can identify the, the some sort of thing can tell us something about that illness. So as we go forward, this is the question for both of you, but I'll start with you is how do everyone here agrees that these, the DSM is not a validated manual. I think we're all agreed with that. <laughs> but then the question is, well, what should be out there to talk to, to help people who are dealing with struggles? Do we need a diagnostic manual? It's such a wonderful question because when I think of mental illness and when I say I was someone who had one, whether or not DSM diagnoses are not biologically caused, they cannot be, they were invented by people. <laughs> like this is, they were just, you know, completely invented. Whether or not mental illness is a category and that that will be biological, you know, found to be biological, I obviously don't have the expertise to say that. When I say I was someone with a mental illness, I guess I see it more as, um, solidarity with, with people who've been through what I went through. At the same time, I was clear, I, I do 
kind of want to bring back the word neurosis because I think being, you know, the sort of DSM-1 and DSM-2 terms of reaction, depressive reaction and anxiety reaction, that there were times when I was simply reacting to my environment. And when we say something is biological, it, lo- it allows us to sidestep not just context, but the social and economic injustices that lead to mental instability, if we want to call it that, that lead to the kind of pressure that can cause someone to break, for lack of a better word, or to suffer. At the same time, I, I do want to, I, I was very, very ill and I had a break from re- with reality. And that feels very severe. So I think what gets mistranslated is that neuroses or a reaction to your environment is it is your fault and it's it's it can't be severe. Versus at some point I was no longer reacting to my environment. And I was simply, you know, I was in a spiral of what I considered to be mental illness. And I had a break with reality and what was happening and unable to function. I mean, I couldn't live independently. I lived with my mother in my 40s. So that that feels like something different than simply reacting to my environment. I don't know. It's a puzzle. It's difficult. I'd love to hear what you both think. Well, we'll switch to Alan. Because I think w- w- there is an agreement that the DSM, as, as, as it has been presented to the public, has actually done a lot of harm. Precisely because it gets people to see themselves in this this way. So, if something's doing harm, what should we replace it with? Well, I think what sort of manual we need, as opposed to what sort of manual is possible, are very different things. Because basically, psychiatry is a medical field. I mean, you have to go to medical school. You take it as part of a medical curriculum. And psychiatry is the only medical discipline where the diagnostic manual has any importance. And the reason is in other areas, I mean, you have blood tests, you have x-rays, you have PET scans that can tell you what the problem is. Psychiatry doesn't have any of those. All they have is a diagnostic manual. And um, the other, I think, very relevant thing is the interests of clinicians and the interests of researchers are so divergent. I think most clinicians take the DSM with many grains of salt, but they have no choice but to use it to get reimbursed for their services. You need to put a diagnosis down. Um, Researchers deal with a much smaller group of conditions. They don't need this huge manual, but they do need to think that they're dealing with the same condition that other researchers are dealing with. I mean, there has to be a certain standardization among researchers, which there doesn't have to be among clinicians. So there's these certain fundamental tensions between clinicians and researchers that I just don't see how they're going to be resolved. So in the last iteration of the DSM. Well, I guess the very last one is now the DSM-5 TR, which as of this past week, but in the DSM-5, it was the researchers who established the manual, um, you know, in 1980 in DSM-3, who have now basically realized 
that it has no validity and that there's actually a you know, very small number of conditions. They're highly interrelated. They're very general and not specific. So the researchers you know, and clinicians, everybody realizes now the um, fundamental weaknesses of the DSM, but they have no clue about how to overcome them. And um, it's a mess. So that's where we are today, 40 years after DSM-3. We have a mess in this very important sphere of our lives, how to understand ourselves and what sort of treatment we get. Everyone agrees it's a mess, but we don't know how to get rid of it. Where my thinking goes with all of this is just what do we do right now? And I feel like there are some answers and those answers can occur. And one is to be completely transparent with patients about the diagnoses that they're receiving. So that I don't know that I would have done anything differently had I known that the diagnoses I received were invalid and probably unreliable. Or if I had been given, uh, you know, generalized anxiety disorder and with it, told, uh, you know what, this has a reliability rating of 0.2 on a scale of zero to one. I mean, then I could think to my for myself and I could say, okay, well, maybe this isn't correct. You know, and I really do think, okay, give us all the reliability scores, the Kappa scores. Give us the information that we need as patients and as clients or whatever you want to call us to make the decision on our own instead of giving us a diagnosis often in a primary care physician's office as if we're receiving a cancer diagnosis or a diagnosis of diabetes, something that can be shown with a test. I never thought to ask why there wasn't a test. You just accepted it as gospel. I definitely, yeah, I definitely did. And I think this falls to mental health professionals and clinicians. And as Alan said, if everyone knows it's a mess, why aren't we making this one fix? Why aren't we doing this one thing that can benefit a lot of people? These people give people the information they need, given that we are using the DSM. Um, and then also to tell patients if you're not using it. I mean, sometimes I hear mental health professionals defend themselves and say, oh, well, I never use the DSM. That scares me even more because then you're not using anything. <laughs> then you're just, this is completely your opinion, which isn't a problem if you tell your patients. Well, if you're um, going to get reimbursement for your treatment, you have no choice but to use the DSM. So they certainly are using it on their forms that they're filling out, even if they're not, if they don't believe in what they're, they're doing. A, a couple of real quick things, then I have a question for you both. There was a study done about people who didn't believe they were ill with psychotic disorders, and they actually had better outcomes over the long term, because they were resisting some of the sort of pessimism and some of the chronicity that is in inherent in accepting that diagnosis. And they actually retained a belief that they could get back to a more normal life. So they're just sometimes as we speak about this, <laughs> there may be even some uh, benefit in just rejecting the whole thing. I, I think that's such a good point, And that gives me so much hope. I mean, just from my perspective, uh, where I am now, I have a diagnosis and I don't know what it is. So my psychiatrist has changed it three times since I started seeing him. And I have never asked what it is from that first day. And I told him I don't want to know. 
So when I say that I have a mental illness, but I don't, you know, go by a diagnosis, that's just simply for me as a way to know that, yes, I did struggle quite a lot. And so I need to do certain things to take care of myself. And so I exercise, I go to sleep at the same time every night I wake up. It's not like I'm out partying, pretending like nothing happened. And I do think that's really important that this kind of continuity of care is going to have to come from ourselves right now. But I do feel that I've healed. I do not feel that mental illness is chronic. And that if we stop telling people that it is, we'd have a much higher recovery rate, certainly. The other complication with this is medication. So I'm on medications and the psychiatrist I ended up seeing paired me back as much as we thought possible. I had have tried to go off my SSRI and it was, the withdrawal was so brutal. I will never try again. I just, I, I almost, I mean, I almost ended my life. And so I just can't risk that again. And it was so painful physically. So what we're at now is, okay, well, does that mean I'm not healed because I take medication? And no, I mean, I even was talking to someone about this, that I don't know if I'm taking medication because my body is dependent on it or because it's actually helping me with something. And at this point, since we know so little about mental illness recovery, I feel like we're going to just have to go on a case-by-case basis with that and, and see what happens. But to try to make someone think, well, you're not healed or you're not cured or you're not well until you get off meds can also do a great disservice if your body is dependent on them which is true for some people. Oh, I know many, many people have trouble getting off the SSRIs with extended protracted withdrawal symptoms. I mean, it, 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 your situation, I think, just also helps highlight the uncertainties of this after you've been down this path and where you end up. To both of you, this question. So we really haven't come up with a solution for, for you know, even the sort of thinking about psychiatric problems, mental disorders, whatever you want to call them, and also a solution that works within, as you said, Alan, a, a sort of medical setting, a clinical setting, and an insurance setting. Is there any way, here's, here's what if you ask me if what I know about this now, it seems to me we should begin with a, a moment of humility. I'm just talking about, we don't know. And it's also clear that there's a lot of different paths that lead to what is called depression or to lead to psychosis. It's not one unified path, unified thing. And once you begin with that humility, it opens up, frankly, a lot of possibilities and a lot of different ways to respond to it. My question to you both is, and I'll start with you, Alan, is there any way we can have humility built into, you know, a, a manual that would be used by people who treat people? Probably not. Uh, because I, I think when you read uh, the certainly the popular press about mental illness, it's exactly the opposite. There's breakthrough after breakthrough, and you know discovery after discovery, and you know miracle after miracle, and now you know I mean say the most recent being you know prolonged grief disorder. I mean that's going to you know solve. All of our problems, you know, Sarah went one year, your cat, you had, um, you know, prolonged grief after your cat died. Um, that, you know, boy, if you had it now, they'd know what to do about it. Um, but so there's a, a true lack of humility that I think we are seeing when, when humility is what is called for, but that's 
I'll believe it when I see it. I think even we could just aspire to an absence of hubris <laughs> might be a better way to go instead of trying for humility. <laughs> I believe that some of the doctors I saw, some were careless, some were very well intended. You know, they had good intentions. I believe that, particularly of one. I believe the psychiatrist I see now is extremely transparent and very honest with me. But one was so had so much hubris, he was determined to make me bipolar. He was determined that that's what I had. And he called himself a bipolar expert. So how could I be seeing a bipolar expert if I wasn't bipolar? I mean, you know, and I'd seen him for for two years and whatever. So I think that that's more of what we can hope for, which is just those three words, I don't know. I'm not sure. You may have depression. You may have anxiety. Not you do. You may. And this is what I'm suggesting we do. What do you think? Like, that's just such an easy conversation to me. The APA can't put out a new, you know, now a DSM-5-TR without saying, well, this is, there's real advances here. It's better than the DSM-5, which is better than the DSM-4 and DSM-3. Um, they're really not, and in many ways, the DSM-1 and 2 were better than what we have now, but there's no progress, but you can't say that. Final question for you, and this is a personal um, thing I think we need to address the pathologizing of kids. And maybe we'll start with you, Alan. We didn't used to pathologize growing up, we pathologize it. Can you speak to the harm that is being done, to, or if you do agree, that harm is being done by putting kids into this pathological uh, category? Yeah, I, I think the single major difference between, say, uh, in terms of the labeling of mental illness now compared to, say, 50 years ago is exactly the pathologization of childhood. And the number of kids, say, now uh, with ADHD taking medication for ADHD or you know, autism spectrum um, disorders, childhood bipolar uh, disorders, that all of these have rates of these have just soared in recent decades. And I really don't think it's because there's any fundamental difference in kids now compared to kids in um, you know, prior eras. It's because you know parents want parents certainly want these diagnoses. They like these diagnoses. They seek out medication to medicate their kids. But um, it's a way of controlling bad behavior and makes their jobs easier. But it, I think they're doing a real disservice to their kids in the long run. Well, this has been great, uh, really interesting. Any sort of last thoughts on this whole topic? Uh, maybe start with you, Alan. Well, I think diagnoses are so socially embedded that they are um, in you know, among um, not just clinicians, um, not just researchers, but that there's whole industries, especially you know, the drug industry that is so propelled by them that the insurance industry requires them. They are com 
thoroughly institutionalized. And so to move away from them, I think, is going to be incredibly difficult. So I would not be optimistic for the, the future of diagnoses. My hope is just to make people aware of what we've been talking about today, which is that DSM diagnoses are invalid, they're largely unreliable, and that if we all knew that, we wouldn't have to wait for psychiatry to do the right thing. I mean, that would give so, patients so much power. I didn't know any of that when I was going through what I went through, and I want to save people and their families from going through the same thing, which means just taking a diagnosis with a healthy dose of skepticism. I mean, as Alan said, if, if psychiatrists today and maybe even mental health professionals take the DSM with lots of grains of salt, we should be doing that too. You know, we should be taking these with grains of salt as well. But we can't do that if people don't know the truth. And that's why I wrote my book is so that I could sort of weave in all the information people need to know in a good story so they'll read it. That's <laughs> basically my idea. And so... But I think also just, so the pathological, the movement is really about trying to get the word out there. I have three questions that I encourage people to ask. And one is to when anyone you know, or if you receive a, a DSM diagnosis, because that's what you're receiving, any mental health diagnosis, you ask whoever is doing the diagnosing, is this diagnosis valid and or reliable? The answer to the first, you know, to valid is no. So if someone says yes, you've got a problem. And that's a good way of weeding psychiatrists out and mental health professionals out. But reliable might be, it depends, and then ask their opinion. But the most important question is, is has this diagnosis been proven to be chronic? And the answer is no. None of these have. We can heal. And then, you know, the third question is, what does this mean for me? And what does it mean for the treatment you're suggesting? And I understand I was very intimidated by my doctors. I probably wouldn't have ever asked those three questions, but I would have known them and I would have had them to ask myself. And that's what I hope for people with the movement is that we will all just spread this word and make sure, especially people um, in economically you know, deprived areas and people who are most at risk, so especially children of color, people of color, that they have this information and um, that they are getting some, they're being empowered in some way. Thank you both for uh, you know, this great discussion and um, really enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you both for spending this time with us. Oh, well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.